Good morning. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amadimadad, and Amadimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz and Rahab, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Reboam, Reboabam, and Reboabam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaphus, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Seleoth. And Selahathal the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abued, and Abued the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eloed, and Eloed the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her he took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get started, I'll totally make a confession. I uh, accidentally sent Amanda too much scripture, and we were only supposed to read like half that. But, 
but not the half you're thinking, not the cool half about Jesus, all of those names. So that's my other confession. Um, So let's pray for how we're going to talk about 44 names. Will you please pray with me? Uh, Loving and gracious God, we're so grateful for your presence in this place, in this world, and in our lives. We pray that through that presence, we might hear your word for us today. Amen. So today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent, which is our season of waiting and preparing for the coming Messiah. And as a result, all of our scriptures are about what was going on before Jesus was born. We, we get an introduction to Jesus, but it's probably a little bit different than how we introduce Jesus. We often tell a story about how God loved the world, but people sinned, so God sent Jesus to bring salvation to a sinful people. That's how we introduce Jesus. That is not how the Gospel of Matthew introduces Jesus. Matthew starts with family. Matthew names all of Jesus' famous relatives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, basically all of the heroes of the Jewish people. Today, that that kind of introduction might sound a little bit ostentatious. I'd like you to meet my friend Matt. His family comes from the Mayflower. His great-great-uncle, six times removed, is Abraham Lincoln. And his cousin's husband and sister lived with Beyonce's best friend from high school. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't really be cool, right? We wouldn't say that, in public at least, but we might like talk about it at family gatherings. I I remember when I was young, like 10, 11, 12, my uncles would tell this story about our most famous relative who was made a knight in Hungary in 1640. The story went like this, that that he received the title of Baron von Remetzi from Napoleon himself, and that title is passed down to the eldest living male of each generation. So if my dad can outlive his brothers, I might be so lucky. It's just a fun story, and it's, it's actually not really true. <laughs> I check my uncle's a historian, and I email him, like, hey, can you tell me that story? And he's like, sorry, it's not true. <laughs> but, but it's still a story that we tell. And it's actually, it's a story we might tell more often if we lived in a society that was waiting for a liberating leader that would one day rise from the lineage of Baron von Rimazzi, which is pretty much what's going on in that first chapter of Matthew. The people of Israel are waiting for a Messiah who will overthrow the Roman occupiers, and they know that this hero will come from the house of David. So Matthew does... Uh, so Matthew, so the first thing Matthew does to introduce Jesus is tell everyone Jesus' royal lineage from the house of David. But there's something interesting in that list of names. Women. Four of them. In the list of 44 people, 
they include four women. They're famous women, or maybe infamous women. When I looked uh, for art for our bulletins, I was able to find uh, actually paintings by each of these women, by the uh, really renowned, wonderful art, Jewish artist Marc Chagall. Do you know what I couldn't find? Paintings of these women with their clothes on. Because history has defined them by their bodies and their sexuality. And that does not tell the story of who these women are. So I will briefly. Our first is Tamar, a young widow. After her husband dies, her brother-in-law and her father-in-law don't take care of her like they're supposed to. So she's exposed and vulnerable. She has no legal protection. She can't remarry. So she takes the situation into her own hands. She disguises herself as a prostitute so that her father-in-law will impregnate her, which he does. But she also asks for his seal as collateral, like in lieu of payment. So when the truth comes out that she's paying, that she's pregnant, her father-in-law's enraged and he plans to kill her. And then she reveals that seal and that it was him. And he names and admits that she is righteous and he is not. That's Tamar. And then there's Rahab. She is a foreign prostitute in enemy territory. So when the Hebrew spies scope out Jericho, they're planning for an evasion. She hides them and protects them. She makes them promise to protect her family before letting them escape down a rope from her window. So when the Israelites eventually conquer Jericho, they come and save her and her family before they invade. That's Rahab. Then we have Ruth. She's a Moabite. And the Moabites were the most hated foreigners uh, among Israelites. She's living in Moab, and she marries an Israelite, but that Israelite man dies. And Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, decides to return to Israel where she'll end up being a poor widow. But Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, and travels to Israel where she's an immigrant. And her only option is to survive by living off the scrapes and the leftovers of farmers. But through some scheming and through some seduction, she marries a wealthy local and secures a future for her family and for her mother-in-law. That's Ruth. And then we have Bathsheba. King David sees her while she's bathing. He learns that she's married he commands that she's brought to him. He commands that he has sex with her, and he gets her pregnant. David tries to trick her husband into sleeping with her to sort of like cover up his sexual assaults. And when he can't, he has the husband killed. But Bathsheba refuses to remain a victim and uses the leverage she has to make King David promise to make her son Solomon the heir to the throne. That's Bathsheba. These are Jesus' grandmothers. He has other grandmothers like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and I can find plenty of art of them with their clothes on. But those are not the women named in Matthew's genealogy. 
We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We know them as foreigners and prostitutes and sinful women. They are, they are the stars of the bad girls of the Bible. Uh, if I, and I knew this reference because somebody totally gave it to my mom as a gag gift in the 90s, but yep, they've got their own chapters. So when I first learned about their inclusion in Matthew's genealogy, it felt beautiful and appropriate as an introduction to Jesus. Like Jesus hung out with sex workers and with Pharisees. He hung out with people like his grandmothers and like his grandfathers. So this seemed to be the perfect introduction to the Messiah who would declare that every person is a part of the human family and embrace those who'd been rejected. And I still think that's true, but I want to push it just a little bit farther. And I think the easiest way to do this will be for me to return to my own family. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I learned more about more of my ancestors, specifically my mom's grandparents. I, I don't know their names. All I know is that my great-grandmother was born on the street in Milwaukee. She was homeless. She eventually realized her son might not survive the streets, so she took him to an orphanage. And I didn't hear this story until I was in my 20s, because my grandfather never mentioned it. He was uh, like well into his 70s, with really not many years left in his life before he told his own children that he was adopted or that he'd lived in an orphanage or that he was born on the street. And I don't know why he never told his kids. <laughs> I mean, he didn't talk much. He was a factory repairman in Michigan. He was not the chatty type. But still, his own kids didn't know. And it just makes me wonder what what kind of shame he carried, or what our world told him about his birth mother. Imagine his little town in Michigan and his little Baptist church might not have seen her in the most gracious light. Imagine that was just not the type of thing people talked about. I imagine it was easier to just let that little detail remain hidden. But something happens to us when we don't tell all of the chapters of our lives. When we feel like we have to present a certain image to the world, we end up omitting and taking out parts of our story. Like, I don't know what they are. We don't mention our brother in prison or the way we treated women when we were young or some lingering bad habit that isn't going away that you feel like it should we instead present a pretty picture of who we are. But down deep, we know that's not us. Not really us. We're way more messy than that. And the longer we keep up that facade, the more it can feel like that image we, more it can feel like that image we present, that that's who we're supposed to be. That person who's worthy of the love and respect we long for. And it's really tough 
to believe that God loves every part of us right now when we don't love every part of us right now. And and when we hide those things that we believe are shameful, the world misses out. Like, you know, I didn't learn about my great-grandmother tells an adult. And, and her story changed me for the better. Like, it, it made it easier for me to see myself in someone experiencing hopelessness. And I, I think about my great-grandmother when I go to the breakfast. I feel no shame in her whatsoever. I feel pride. She was resilient and she had like a self-giving love that was just powerful. Like I, I get choked up when I think about it. Like a parent who gives up a child because they know they can't care for them. That's the most Christ-like picture of love I can imagine. And that's what we see in Jesus' grandmothers. In these women, we find sacrificial love as they proactively do whatever it takes to secure their safety and their family's safety. They're survivors who are loyal and perceptive and crafty and brave. Meister Eckhart said that we are all meant to be mothers of God because God is always needing to be born. But these women knew that before Eckhart wrote it down. And they used their only source of power to bear Christ. (laughs) All of our commentaries call them sinful, but I'm not down with that. They are our heroines, like my great-grandmother is to me. And, And of course this cuts the other way, too. When While defining those women as sinful... We generally praise the men in Jesus' genealogy, but they were no saints. Abraham, on multiple occasions, encouraged men to sleep with his wife in exchange for political protection. Jacob won his position by lying and cheating his blind father. David was a murderer. Rehoboam loses most of David's kingdom through arrogance and greed. Ahaziah was a sadistic mass murderer like his father Ahab. And actually, like my famous relatives in the lineage of Baron von Rimazzi. I Some more details I learned from my uncle, the historian, is that a few generations later, the bearer of that noble title was accused of uh, treason and fled to Germany, Germany, where he got the daughter of a leading citizen pregnant before skipping town. There, there are so many chapters of our lives that never get told. Like chapters of our own lives and chapters of the lives in this list of royal names. They're chapters of survival and courage and self-giving love. Chapters that tell the whole story. And chapters that prepare us for the arrival of Christ. Because this will be a Messiah who loves and embraces every chapter of our life. A Messiah who's proud to be introduced by his grandmothers. A Messiah whose dearest friends were women who had their own stories of survival and courage and, and 
self-sacrificial love. A Messiah who wasn't shocked by the worst thing someone could do, and his favorite line to say was, your sins are forgiven. This is a Messiah who loves every chapter of our lives and every aspect of who we are. So we take this Advent season to wait, to prepare, to remember Jesus' grandmothers, and to gain the courage to tell all the chapters of our lives, because Christ is born of all of it. Advent is a season to look back at that history, and then from that foundation, look ahead and ask, what is waiting to be born in our lives? Amen.